Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. In this episode, the second of two on this topic, we are talking to Dan Grossman about the history of asynchronous transfer mode. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we meld with the finest minds in networking. So other things that were going on of interest, the community really needed to establish a supply chain. Uh, a lot of the physical layer stuff for ATM, and then ultimately a lot of the ATM layer stuff um, would have to be implemented um, in A6. And there was a need recognized fairly early for a standard interface between an ASIC and um, uh, a switch fabric or um, uh, a processor. This thing was called Utopia. It went through a couple of different iterations. And it was one of the most important things to having um, uh, a chip industry. This would be um, something like um, uh, in in Ethernet. Uh, sorry, I'm drawing a blank. Here. No, so a standard chip interface sounds a lot like uh, like Psi or something like this. If it's a chip interface, or is it? More on the hardware side, going from the Ethernet into the uh, into the into this. This isn't the Ethernet. This is hardware side stuff. It's ATM, and you have an ATM Phi device and a switch fabric or um, an AAL processor, and you have this interface between them. So this permitted uh, the industry to, um, uh, to grow fairly rapidly. Um, let's see, what else? There were a bunch of physical layer specifications that were developed over the years. And those um, was everything from uh, cheap desktop uni up to um, uh, I think uh, 1.2 gigabits per second over Sonic. And a lot of these things were more or less invented in the ATM forum or rather in member companies. And some of the best fisticuffs managed to happen in the Phi group. Um, I don't know why it is, but Phi discussions almost always end up in a lot of yelling and screaming. So at the time, it was a, a modulation thing. Should it be carrierless AMPM, or should it be street multitone? Or should it be black codes? And 
you know, they, they came out with a bunch of different specifications. Uh, the, D, the CAPS stuff ultimately got voted down um, with a lot of vituperation on one side. Um, but what all the, this meant was that the ATM to the desktop thing was delayed in basically standards battles. And this cost the technology some time in the marketplace. Uh, push for that to ATM to the desktop was a pretty interesting big thing. Like we were going to get rid of all our Ethernet cards and push every ATM all the way to every machine. Exactly. And oh, by the way, uh, there's still people talking about pushing GPine to every machine. Which, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, same, same idea, just higher rate, and yeah, it is Ethernet encapsulated at least. Right. Um, speaking of IP encapsulation, uh, there was a lot of work done um, there at uh, the ATM forum and the IETF on exactly how you would encapsulate IP in uh, an ATM. Uh, this was something I was deeply involved with. Uh, that was why I first started going to um, uh, IETF meetings, if I remember correctly. And there was a camp of people who wanted to take entire um, Mac header and IP header and stuff it in, into cells. So that way you could do simple bridging with multiple uh, protocols running over Ethernet over ATM. Uh, you'll recollect at the time, just about everybody had their own proprietary flavor of network operating system that ran over Ethernet token link. Right, yep. Um, uh, IPX, yeah, Neural Netware, uh, Banyan Vines, Lantastic, um, Microsoft, and IBM had one that was combined, I think, uh, which is the basis for NetBIOS type of various stuff. And then Apple. Yep, DECnet. DECnet, right. And there were a whole bunch of others. Um, here's the problem. A TCP ACK um, is 20 bytes of IP header and 20 bytes of um, uh, TCP header. About half of the packets going through the internet are going to be TCP ACKs. Maybe, maybe a little less. Um, the um, size of the last cell in an AL5 frame, uh, the, I'm sorry, the, um, the data field of the last cell in an AL frame was exactly 40 bytes. So if you get away with the Ethernet header, you could pack a TCP ACK over IPv4 
into a single cell. And that reduced a lot of fragmentation, you know, just dead space, because you had um, uh, a 48-byte cell and uh, I think a 4-byte cell with uh, uh, 44 bytes of padding after, after it. Uh, 40 bytes of padding. Uh, so this one did wind up in a compromise. And if you look at RFC huh, 2684, I think it was, um, something like that, you'll, you'll see a notion of VC multiplexing and um, uh, the, the Ethernet encapsulation. Uh, back on traffic management, um, very early on, there wasn't a real lot of good understanding of what computers needed. This notion of best effort service, which is, you know, just like water in, um, in the internet world, was just kind of a foreign thing. What do you mean best effort? And there was ultimately a decision to say, yes, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll put an unspecified bit rate service, a best effort service in. And we will rely on uh, TCP to uh, uh, kind of keep it under control. But you get what you get, just like in the rest of the internet. Um, there were a bunch of people, uh, Dave Tenenhouse, who was at MIT at the time, uh, uh, Scott Shanker, Brian Lyles, a whole bunch of other folks of that caliber had come in with this, this idea that rather than relying on the transport layer for essentially network layer slash data link layer um, resource management, that you would build a control loop into the ATM layer. And this was a really good idea, in part because, as, as now, you uh, can't assure that uh, everything's going to be running TCP. And you can't assume that TCP is going to behave correctly. Um, I think it was Bradner who used to say that about once a year he'd have a grad student come into his office and tell him about their brilliant idea for uh, fixing IP performance, which was doing away with um, uh, TCP congestion control. <laughs> and replacing it with what? Not <laughs> Nothing? Yeah, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> no, that, that wasn't going to work. <laughs> Here's... Um, I really expected that the internet would go into congestion collapse someday. Um, I suppose it's still possible, although a lot more difficult. Uh, the 
the scenario I was thinking about was somebody um, got a virus going that implanted a very slightly modified TCP into every Windows machine in the world. And at day zero, all of a sudden, rather than additive increase, multiplicative decrease, we got additive increase, multiplicative increase. Right, right. Um, so um, this was good. Also, you had to have a lot of slop in, um, in an IP network just to deal with the fact that, um, and frankly, TCP congestion control was kind of a hack. Um, uh, ben and the others did it in response to a situation after a lot of things had been baked in. And, you know, it's held up for all these years, kind of like sort of. Um, but we learned a lot between that point and the time that these ABR discussions were starting to go on. Um, so this was again going on in the ATM forum. I, uh, I'm sorry, ITU was kind of hanging in the back. And once again, there was a whole bunch of ideas that came in and it got winnowed down to two. Um, one of them was an explicit rate control system. Each switch would um, divide up its resources at the time among uh, the competing virtual connections using them. And it would uh, put an acceptable cell rate into the return path. Remember I said that uh, virtual connections were bi-directional. So you um, you have a switch somewhere and it would send back a resource management cell which would be um, picked up by the next switch potentially, modified down if necessary, and sent back to the sender. And then it was up to the sender to uh, um, to shape their traffic to this um, uh, available rate. Uh, the other one involved uh, credit passing. I don't remember too much about it. Um, there was a handful of people. I think that Belcor was one of them. Um, there was a company called Nexion that um, ultimately got sucked into Fujitsu. Fujitsu was? Yeah, Fujitsu. And um, a couple other startups who were really, really pushing hard on the credits. Uh, Larry Roberts got involved for a while. Um, it was one of those debates that um, you just got to get out the popcorn for. <laughs> so anyway, we... Oh, yeah. 
there, there was another example of things getting a little rough. Uh, somebody was presenting uh, something or other about a rate-based scheme. And one of the credit-based camps um, was offended. Remember, we had um, overhead projectors at the time, slides, foils. <laughs> yeah, right. And um, uh, John Bennett, I think it was, went over, ripped uh, the other guy's foil off the projector, and they wound up arm wrestling over the projector and the two foils. <laughs> uh, the, the chair was finally able to get them to stop. <laughs> wow. Arm wrestling. Okay. Well, there you go. It's one way. It's probably better than flipping a coin to write, to write a standard. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, all that got published in the 1996 time frame. Which, again, it happened a few years earlier uh, before IP and ATM had, or I'm sorry, IP and Ethernet had established as much of a foothold as they had. Uh, history might have turned out differently. Uh, it would have been really easy to convince a corporate um, customer that they really needed ABR rather than relying on TCP. So, um, going on to a slightly different topic, I mentioned uh, PNNI, Private Network Node Interface. Right. And the yeah, idea... Is, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Oh. Um, the idea here was that we would have a standard interface that could go between private network nodes of different manufacturer and that manufacturers could run the suite of protocols between them. And then ultimately the telcos who were still kind of hung up in signaling system number seven type stuff took a look at what private network folks were doing and said, gee, maybe we ought to adapt that. I mean, hey, you've got actual dynamic routing that doesn't involve a control center and a bunker in Bedminster, New Jersey. We kind of like that. So um, I explained a little bit about PNNI. Uh, this was one of the uh, most productive working groups in the ATM forum. Uh, first of all, a lot of the uh, people who had been involved in ISIS and um, the ITF routing protocols, uh, BGP4 and... Um, right. IS to IS, I think, is, is really a lot of the inspiration for PNNI, at least in terms of link state capabilities. Yes, it is. Here's the reason. Russ Callum. Ah, interesting. I didn't know he was involved in PNNI. Yeah, he was involved. John Moy was involved. Um, I remember there were a couple other people who kind of migrated. Uh, James Watt 
uh, who migrated from ITF to um, uh, ATM Forum uh, just so they could work on this protocol. And as I said, this was a vast improvement over the IETF's routing system. In fact, there was brief talk that maybe IETF ought to adopt it, which wasn't going to work anyway. You know, the, that idea kind of died. Um, but it's a really nice piece of work, and if you want to see how routing should be, uh, go to the broadband forum site and take a look at this monster. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, hope I'm not offending anybody's sensibilities here. <laughs> no, no, no. This no, is no. this is pretty uh, uh, nice <laughs> compared to some of the other podcasts we've done. Yeah, yeah. But, but um, a couple other things that went on. Um, the uh, telecom industry was just beginning to look into internet access for uh, consumers. And we formed a thing called the Residential Broadband Working Group. I was the vice chair of this thing. Uh, David Thorne from BT was the chair. And we were looking at ATM over ADSL, um, over passive optical networks, um, over a lot of different media and how you distribute it in the house and um, what the service would look like and so forth and so on. So the original ADSL form specifications for, you know, kind of baseline, three megabit down, uh, 768 kilobit up ADSL uh, was ATM. And there's still a certain amount of that out there today. Um, the reason why uh, David Thorne was so involved in it was he, his group was looking at this notion of a passive optical network as being uh, a relatively cost-effective way of uh, doing um, distribution over an optical network and a residential small business kind of context. Um, that vision had been floating around since I think uh, maybe the late 80s and didn't become real reality until uh, maybe about 2004, 2005. Um, but again, this was based on ATM. The initial one was 600 megabits downstream, 155 megabits upstream. And that morphed into a thing called DPON, which um, got deployed uh, by Verizon heavily and a few other telcos. And that, and that plus uh, there was um, um, Ethernet PON, which was pretty heavily deployed in Asia. In roughly that time frame, and between them, uh, that got us to the point of optical broadband. Uh, as I said, 
uh, Verizon still has about 20% of their customers on DPON. Uh, they tell me that they're uh, looking to uh, reduce it over time just with equipment attrition. Um, Microsoft built into uh, one of the versions of WinSock um, an ATM API. So you could, from an application, set up a connection uh, with a particular traffic contract and um, negotiate parameters and um, uh, shut it down when you're finished with it. Um, you could add legs onto a multi-point connection, all those kinds of things. Um, and there were a lot of us who hoped that this would be the trigger for ATM to the desktop. And it turned out that application developers had no real interest in setting up connections. So the thing kind of weathered and died. Yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, application developers are still using IP addresses as lo as uh, as host names. So you know, that's a perennial problem. Yeah. Um, I'll mention that um, during that time frame, I was not just doing standards. Um, we had had a uh, huge project at Motorola, which turned out to be a glorious failure. And one of the things that came out of it was uh, fast packet technology that we could very easily adapt, adopt to, um, uh, to ATM. And Motorola at the time uh, was in the semiconductor business. Uh, the entity that was until recently Freescale and is now part of NXP. And by this time, my group had turned into uh, uh, Motorola Labs, and we were working with the semiconductor guys to build um, an ATM switch port, uh, 155 megabit per second interfaces, uh, going on to a 2.4 gig bus based fabric. Um, this was the kind of scale that people were talking about at the time for enterprise use. Um, and we were determined that we were going to bend the price curve. Uh, the plan was that the initial list price would be 80 bucks, which by comparison with um, just about everything else out there was a really good deal. Um, we did strictly according to the books and the standards. We included uh, full ADR specification. Um, we included all the operations and maintenance capabilities in ATM. A lot of things that nobody else had bothered with. Um, and we got a first pass. We baited it to about four systems in Ottawa. They designed it into well, one of their products. And shortly afterwards, uh, Dan Artuzzi uh, came in as general manager of the semiconductor business and killed it. Um, I 
remain convinced that to the extent that uh, cost was a factor in um, demise of ATM, this was just one, one more nail in the coffin. Okay, so um, let me um, hop into another. Oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, that's okay. So, so we've gotten so we've gotten through ATM to the desktop and um, the stuff like this that is going on. Um, so, when ATM, what what was the primary driver? We would say behind ATM not succeeding in the market, but it may seem like it had so much in that time frame. Had so much um, momentum, and so many people were involved in it and stuff like that. that it's just odd that. It just didn't actually take off. Um, I attribute most of that to a faction inside of Cisco who were on a holy war to destroy ATM. And they looked at the overheads in ATM, that five bytes per cell, and they called it, quote, the cell tax. And, you know, this is a really easy tagline to put into your marketing presentations. And um, there, there were other things, too. But um, that, I think, was the most important of them. Um, the fact that it was late in a lot of respects. Um, yeah, it took a long time because it went through the whole standards process, and even the ATM forum was not... Um, still took a long time, even through ATM Forum, to get things done. Exactly. Um, when they formed ATM Forum, they thought that they could rush everything through. And over time, they realized, first of all, people were going to debate stuff. And second of all, that there were actually antitrust laws that they had to be watching out for, unless members wind up in court. So... It did slow down. It did become bureaucratic. And that cost time. And um, another thing was, and I, as, as I mentioned before, people were pricing ATM switches like they were telecom stuff rather than datacom stuff. They were expecting those kinds of margins. And if you're trying to play into datacom world when Ethernet is declining rapidly in price, um, you just can't try to hold on to those margins. So that, that cost. Um, but I really do think it was a market perception problem. And ultimately, the market perceived that IT was the future that everything's going to be over IT. And uh, IT warts and all um, became it. Interesting. Yeah. So is there any other history that we want to um, cover in this particular, I mean, you talk about with ATM going forward from that point um, other than what we've covered? Um. I'm going to say that, that, that that's the end of my introduction. Uh, I got pulled out of the ATM forum in, I think, 2000, just because 
it was dwindling down to nothing. And as I said, a couple of years later, merged into MPLS form, merged into um, broadband form. Um, they did continue to produce specifications until I think 2002. Um, Interesting, yeah. The thing I wanted to do while I had more, um, those tax on ATM and some of the design decisions that from an IETF perspective would be unorthodox. I just want to walk through uh, why those were good trade-offs, at least at the time. And if people want to go back, there was an issue of um, computer communications review from, I don't know, sometime in the uh, mid-2000s mid to late 2000s. It was a retrospective on ATM, uh, John Crowcroft's uh, project. And I had a paper in there that goes through this in more depth. Um, those fixed size cells, a couple of things about them. Uh, first of all, they have deterministic service times. Uh, you approximate um, packet switching with an MM1 queuing system, you approximate ATM with an MD1 queuing system. Uh, according to Kleinrock, the MD1 system about has about half the average waiting time as an MM1 system. So what it gets down to is you can run at higher link utilization without congesting. Um, the second uh, good point about those fixed size cells is that because the, um, uh, the unit of forwarding is a cell rather than a variable length packet, uh, shapers and policers, which have to work on units of bytes to accumulate and uh, disperse credits, um, have uh, a granularity mismatch. Uh, so you can over-police or under-police uh, depending on uh, whether you decide to allow uh, credits to be borrowed or not. Um, and um, to, there was something else about scheduling. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, fairness. It was a lot easier to build uh, a simple scheduler um, that um, was truly fair. Uh, fixed size cells, sure. Yeah. Size cells, round robin scheduling. Um, no weighted fair killing, um, and no effort to correct all that bias. Right, yeah. Uh, the other thing about it is that for um, uh, um, CBR, you, you really have to put out bytes 
at a certain time synchronized to a clock. And some of the implementations, including I think ours, used a calendar-based schedule to make sure that that exact time slot, the cell belonging to that connection, would be scheduled for transmission. Uh, variable size frames uh, were not going to be happy with that. Um, mm -hmm. Second thing about fixed size cells hardware implementation. Um, it's a lot easier to build interconnects, for example, buffer managers, queuing systems, if you know the size of everything going through. Um, and that, in turn, affected die size, clock speed, pin counts, those sorts of things. It allowed pipelining. Um, and it turned out that a lot of Ethernet switches of that era and since actually did use, if not ATM, then some other kind of fragmentation reassembly just to make the hardware easier to build. Right, yeah. Yeah, with Cisco 8500, I used an ATM backplane for a long time. Um, actually, that was the only, I mean, when the 8500 was produced, it was an ATM backplane. Because uh, you had to you had to fragment and reassemble the packets anyway, so the ATM hardware was available. Okay, um, talk about the forty-eight byte thing uh, and the um, uh, packetization delay of six milliseconds. Um, we talked about TCP acts. Yep. At the time, packet. Um, size distribution had that sharp peak at 40 bytes, um, meaning a TCP send fan or ACK, as long as IP and TCP options were turned off, which was pretty much all the time. So a large percentage of your traffic could fit into a single cell. Yeah, right. And the last thing that I neglected to mention was that two MPEG-2 transport stream uh, packets can fit into exactly eight cells uh, with AAL5. So um, video over ATM was uh, entertainment video over ATM, I should say, um, was pretty efficient. Yeah. Um, the virtual connection thing, of course, uh, that was the subject of Holy Wars dating. Well into the uh, well into the seventies, um, and it turns out that um, connection statefulness is a very useful thing. Um, first of all, um, we've moved into a world where we have more elephants flows than mouse flows, or I should say more data as elephant flows. I think that there's still more mouse flows out there. Um, so you set up one of these things once, um, 
you can afford to do a lot of processing. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, during that connection setup, it can be in the slow path and won't hold things up terribly. Um, and you can optimize during that time. Yeah. Um, the ATM forum actually tried to create a native connectionless mode, uh, but it never really managed to figure out how to do it. Um, now, another reason why virtual connections are good is inside the switch. Um, you have a VPI and possibly uh, a VCI and possibly a VPI that maps to um, a piece of state information. That's a simple table lookup. Or if you're doing it more in hardware, a binary can. Uh, and this is order one computational complexity. Right. Whereas with variable link fields, it's more difficult. But the ASICs are pretty much adopted to that now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even at the time they were going that direction, but there's a lot of complexity in lines to match. Um, okay. It's right. not as much more plan on an ASIC as it used to be, obviously. Um, but you still have that complexity. Um, yeah. And also, I think in um, subsequent time frame, they started coming out with ternary cams. Um, <clears throat> let's see what else. Well, I think I think we've pretty much covered the history of ATM at this point, so I think we can wrap it up here and maybe do another show if we want to later on ATM itself, um, if that kind of makes sense. Okay, that 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 does make sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think we got the history. Is there anything? Well, Donald, do you want to ask anything before we drop off? Um, I guess you know the kind of the standard question I always go for is the, looking back. What was the one thing you would change? Um, there isn't one thing. There's several. First and foremost, that forty-eight byte payload. Um, that was a compromise that did not stand the test of time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was actually one of the things that ended up killing ATM ultimately. Yeah. Um, not, not because it was really less efficient, but because it could be perceived to be less efficient. Um, I would have uh, done AAL5 completely differently if I were starting with... Um, uh, a cell as a blank slate. Uh, Tom and crew had to wedge it in to an existing ATM cell. Uh, the idea of marking a last cell rather than a first cell and subsequent last um, uh, hurt a little bit. And lastly, from a marketing perspective, uh, the ATM forum had a marketing arm, and they were very reluctant to fight back. So 
Yeah, a lot of times it's perception that wins the day, even in the technology world, even though we don't often see it that way. Yeah. It's a VHS Betamax situation. Yeah. As, as right. I, and um, one of those hard lessons I learned in my career was that the best technology doesn't always win. Yeah. It's often the marketing department that makes the difference. The marketing department and the industry and a lot of external factors. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Of course. All right. Well, we'll wrap up there and uh, I'm going to split this one into two, but thanks. Thanks for coming on and talking to us about the history of ATM. It's very interesting. All the different arguments that went on and some of the background and, and uh, some of the reasons decisions were made and especially the 48 byte thing. I mean, nobody, you know, it's like one of those, compromises that like you know just as strange that it would come down to that that type of thinking about um trying to do things so it's it's kind of cool to have somebody on who was there when it all happened and uh you know uh participated in the process of creating such what turned out to be a really actually an important technology through all that time so dan can they can you do you blog or anything any place do you write or um, I assume people can get you on LinkedIn, but is there any other place that you write or do anything? Yeah, I haven't touched my blog in a very long time. Um, my business is called Net Access Futures, all one word. Okay. And, uh, my website is netaccessfutures.net. Okay. Um, I do a lot of writing for um, the Light Reading Group. Ah, so you can so people can find you on light reading as well, which is good. Oh yeah, yeah. I've, I've done a lot on light reading. I've done a lot on broadband world news. Okay. I've done some uh, paywall reports for heavy reading. Okay, cool. And Donald, we know you can find you at me not you sharp on right. Twitter, right? Because the only blogging you do is microblogging. <laughs> I keep trying to get Donald to blog, but you know. Drawing pretty pictures with FR. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, doing. drawing pretty pictures with FR. And for me, you can always find me at rule11.tech in the Network Collective and at Routing Geek on Twitter and LinkedIn and I don't know, wherever else, Instagram, whatever. You can find me all over the place. So uh, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Network Collective um, History of Networking. Uh, that's really cool. Thanks for all the information on ATM, Dan. And uh, we'll bring you back on sometime to talk about ATM proper, I think. So um, thanks. Yeah, okay. thanks, Dan. It was a lot of fun. <laughs>